Welcome everybody to the 29th episode of Quarantined Market Podcast, where some academics get together in the comfort of their self-isolating pajamas and discuss particular keywords. So the keyword for today is clapping. And as guest, we have Seth Wheeler. So Alan, would you like to introduce Seth, please? Indeed I would. Uh, Seth Wheeler is currently doing a PhD at Royal Holloway, the School of Business. Uh, but in addition to that, he is one of the founding editors of the Workers' Inquiry. He uh, was co-editor of the book Occupy Everything, Reflections of the Way It's Kicking Off Everywhere. Um, and soon to be the editor of a new book in and against the state, which will be coming out in a few months' time with Pluto. So hello, Seth. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, everybody. The key word that we've selected today is clapping, but I suppose um, this could be a reference to a much broader context, such as the way that people are communally coming together to express themselves under the circumstances of lockdown. We've mentioned this phenomenon before, so uh, Joe Grady and Sukdev Johal had both talked about how in Britain people came out of their houses at 8 o'clock on Thursdays to clap for a minute for the key workers at the National Health Service um, and care homes. How should we think about this issue, Seth? What's going on? So clapping is obviously uh, a concept that has generated almost a thousand hot takes uh, online hot takes. Um, I mean, some of the less generous ones have obviously sort of, uh, leveled critique at clapping as a mechanism through which the state or particularly the sort of Boris Johnson government can iron out class antagonism, can rally us together through its narrative of we're all in this together by offering this sort of expression of our sympathy and gratitude towards the, the NHS. And by default, sort of iron out all of the antagonisms that underpin the current struggles that are happening in the NHS, i.e. lack of adequate PPE, um, lack of adequate wages, lack of adequate rest, um, and all the other sort of conditions which are making that crisis incredibly difficult to navigate uh, for those workers. But also at the same time, I mean, clapping has long been associated with showing sort of collective appreciation for effort. And that's usually sort of either personal or artistic. Uh, so it has this sort of capacity to impart a sort of unity or, or, or a collectivity or, or a recognition of someone else's activity. And I think as a means of it collectively expressing our sympathies and our solidarities with NHS workers or frontline workers in an era where all other forms of meaningful forms of solidarity have sort of been sort of hollowed out to the point where people are too anxious to leave their houses. It's very obvious that something like that would would take off and uh, and would fill that sort of need or that that void where the absence of being able to come together collectively um, could be met. So I think it has this sort of dual effect, right? One, it sort of can be utilised to, to imagine a community of millions um, where there's no sort of antagonisms um, where we're all in this together uh, and we're showing our appreciation of those who are at the front of this struggle. And at the same time, it also has this effect to sort of iron out critique because it can be so quickly co-opted into this sort of larger meta-narrative that the state were trying to create around how we were all in this together, despite the fact that obviously we weren't all in this together. Seth, I noticed that there have been similar practices in other countries 
for example, in Ireland, there was uh, people lit a candle on one particular evening. That was to mark all the people who died. Sinead O'Connor did a, a broadcast at that time singing a Snow Patrol song, which sounds naff, but was actually quite moving. But it does seem that there is a wider desire outside of the context of what's happening in Britain for people in lockdown to just have some sort of communal embodied experience. Would you say so? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to try and trace the sort of epistemology of this sort of moment, like where, I mean, I think the origins of this um, erupt very early in sort of, I think in Wuhan is where they first, you know, have this sort of collective uh, clapping in the evening uh, to express solidarity and their gratitude to frontline workers. But you also then have in the uh, very quickly in Italy, you have this process of uh, collective singing where people come onto their balconies and start singing and, you know, performing operatic pieces and whatever to each other. So there's definitely a desire to find a form of commonality or at least a, a form of, yeah, an embodied form of social solidarity or connection that you can't just get from like Zoom. You can't gain from uh, screen-based sort of exchanges, right? There's this sort of, you know, need to find others, and through this, through this sort of audio resonance, you know, you can f feel the people around you that you can't maybe see, right? So you don't feel so alienated or lost or maybe isolated. Now, in a very British way, it seemed to me that that when I saw this clapping when I participated in it, it was a very ambiguous moment. So it wasn't clear if some people were acting in defiance of the state uh, as a sort of uh, leftist gesture supporting workers when they were clearly being maltreated or whether they were doing it uh, in support of the prime minister and uh, conservative government. Yeah, so it's, it's ambiguous, right? Sort of like an empty signifier to a certain extent. But I feel, I mean, there were obviously attempts by right-wing activists and people inside the Tory party and, and inside some of the right-wing media to get a campaign of uh, clapping for Boris when he was unwell. It should be noted that that didn't viralise in, in the same way as, you know, clap for carers, right? So I think to tease out what was the political motivation that underpinned that is really incredibly hard. But I think it's fair to say that people were clapping in solidarity with frontline workers. Uh, and I would argue that, that that didn't include the police, right? I think this was primarily orientated towards caregivers and by extension, sort of other frontline forms of workers, particularly sort of young workers who may be working in the, um, in the retail sector, etc. I mean, I did notice some boos occasionally. I did. Uh, so I live in a very small block of flats in central London and you could hear the sort of crescendo of claps coming down the road and everyone was sort of rushed to their window and join in. And occasionally you would hear sort of, you know, someone scream out something in support of NHS workers or you might hear a few, uh, you know, fuck Boris's or whatever. I'm all right to swear, aren't I? To be honest, Seth, I think it's, it's incredible that you've managed to put the words clap Boris Johnson, nurses, virus together without making a cheap joke. So I think you're <laughs> extra credit. So, so curse away, go ahead. You're clearly a very ma more mature man than me. <laughs> so I suppose the question as well is sort of like how, I mean, obviously, the, uh, you know, again, to look at the sort of origins of the phenomena, it started online initially as a call by, I believe, a young woman in early March. 
uh, it very quickly managed to gain uh, support through the mainstream media just on off the back of you know how viral that initial sort of um, campaign went online it got co-opted very quickly into the main into the sort of mainstream media narrative so it became like a regular fixture like every Thursday night you would be clapping and obviously that was supported then by Boris Johnson and others but also if you go to the like the official website which you know is kind of interesting it had this sort of like official clap for carers website which was established I think for the quote-unquote first recognized uh, march event for um that's sponsored and support, supported by, you know, Spotify, who, are, who is obviously one of the companies from the, ironically, from the big Silicon Six, who we know, you know, have not been uh, very clear, shall we say, uh, with uh, HMRC regarding their taxes. And so, you've, you know, you have this capacity for these corporations then to ride on the coattails of this collective activity and somehow bury their poor track record on paying tax, which, you know, could have been alleviated, could have alleviated some of the austerity spending measures that were levelled at the NHS and left them in such a disastrous space in the first place. This is kind of what I'm thinking about too, because uh, of course any act of solidarity in these alienated times is of course commendable, but even even with the risk of sounding really pessimistic, it seems to me that there's always been a certain kind of layer of superficiality or even sort of posturing that, that has to do with this kind of collective act of clapping in the sense that, as you mentioned, like it's sort of hollowed out as an activity itself, like you said, an empty signifier, sort of. Or like a, you also use the term recognition. So you do recognize something, but it's almost like a hollowed out recognition or a distorted recognition that I'm thinking about. A little bit like liking in Facebook, like doing this slacktivism in a sense. Is there something, could you approach it also from this little bit critical and pessimistic angle, or is that being too harsh on people? I think you can, and it's correct to do so, because I think that's what's actually, I think you have to have a pessimistic view of engaging with this, because, you know, what we had was frontline workers who were dying um, because of their lack of PPE, because of their terrible working conditions, because of their lack of actual equipment. And then you also had, like, people dying in this, you know, unprecedented rates in the United Kingdom, I think. By May, um, the UK, as a statistic, I think it made up 11.5% of the global deaths from COVID-19, which is just like, you know, absolutely unprecedented figure uh, for a developed, for a, you know, a a post-industrial developed nation at that time. Obviously, it's been superseded now by America. Yeah, so I think you have to approach it with this sort of pessimism on the basis that whatever gratitude people were expressing was being cynically manipulated by this sort of right-wing media machine to sort of hollow out any criticisms that could be levelled by, you know, civil society against the government's lack of strategy regarding the COVID crisis, which was obviously leading to these sort of this exponential death rate and endangering these these frontline workers. So, yeah, it's very hard not to perceive clapping as maybe a sort of cynical exercise in mitigating maybe even proactively stopping real forms of social solidarity emerging that can go beyond just the merely symbolic. But yes, I also feel like you're right. It has this sort of like, almost like clicktivism style activism to it, where you can just like turn up at your window. It's a very low cost of entry. You don't really have to invest in anything. You just have to like stand in the window with a pan 
your neighbours can see that you're a kind and considered person and then you can slip back inside and watch EastEnders or something. And also thinking, um, I remember it, Jody Dean commenting on the expression, we are the 99% and Occupy Wall Street, and saying that one of the reasons why it works so well as a slogan was because it articulated the desire to be a collective. And there's something in that as well, isn't there, that desire to be constituted uh, politically in this case as as you know people who who uh, are are going to express themselves yeah perhaps i mean yes there's obviously like a sense a necessity for some sort of sense of of collectivity or collective belonging or an expression of a collective outpouring of grief maybe but also at the same time i think it obviously resonated with people in a in a very particular way for it to just take off so quickly far quicker than when than before the mainstream media got hold of it and sort of like hyped it up into this phenomena. I mean, also, we've had other periods of resonance, you know, since COVID, which have been marked by people coming into the streets and acting collectively, right? So we've had, you know, the, the phenomena of Black Lives Matter in America, and then, you know, the event of taking the knee, for example, which in, you know, in, in the original context, you take the knee during the national anthem to express... Uh, your dissatisfaction with what's being carried out in, you know, by the sovereign body in quote unquote your name, and then suddenly that 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 resonates and spreads globally, right? So to the point where you have people in Trafalgar Square sitting down and taking the knee as well, right? So I don't know. It sort of put me in mind a bit of um, this old quote from the Invisible Committee, which they wrote in um, the coming insurrection in two thousand and nine. I've, I've got it up actually. It's kind of interesting. So the dissemination, they argue, of a revolutionary moment is not carried by contamination, but by resonance. Uh, Something that surfaces here resounds with the shockwave emitted by something that has happened over there. And the body that resonates does it in its own way. So um, they argue an insurrection is not like the expression of a plague or a forest fire, i.e. it's not a linear process passing from one place to the next that starts from an initial spark, but rather it is something that takes shape like music, where, you know, even if that's scattered over time and space, manages to try and impose the pace of its own vibration onto reality. And I think that's kind of true. That's, you know, that's kind of what we've seen happen with Black Lives Matter, suddenly literally exploding in the American context. And then, you know, you're seeing uh, riots and protests and occupations, uh, you know, transcontinentally in opposition to white supremacy and, uh, and patriarchal capitalism. I think that's, I mean, that's an incredibly interesting moment. What about the issue of noise as well as a particular type of intervention? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously noise can express, you've only got to go to a football match to appreciate how it can express collective elation or, or gratitude or thanks or just plain... I don't know, plain support for, for, for something that you're invested in, right? However, there's also the phenomena of the slow clap. And I'm not talking like the slow clap that's often deployed in sort of television where, you, you know, usually to, to indicate someone overcoming some sort of great personal crisis or something, you know, where you get someone on stage and they, they do a song, they're not too sure whether they're going to be able to pull it off or not. And then someone slowly claps and then the whole audience crescends behind them. I'm talking about the slow clap as a sort of like 
act of political sabotage where you will, you know, almost as if it's, yeah, this sort of critical distance from what you're seeing uh, by by slowing down the clap to the point where it's, you know, it's not the frenzied, excited, elated response that you would expect. It's this very slow, thundering, almost judgmental sound. So there's obviously a history of slow clapping as a form of sort of dissent. But I mean, the noise as a form of dissent, you know, you have noise protests outside of prisons in solidarity with people inside, sending a message in that there are people outside who, who are there with them. There's also that very famous account in the early 2000s in Israel where the music of Hitler's favourite composer, Wagner, uh, was played in an Israeli concert hall for the first time. Um, and an 80-year-old man uh, managed to stand up in the audience and shouted shame at everyone around him. And uh, he got out an old football rattle and basically sort of spun it around and spun it around his head. There was a really nice moment where he was interviewed afterwards and he said that he was disappointed that everyone else had remained in their seats trying to ignore the nagging of his rattle. He slipped away without being arrested. But it did, it did force a conversation over the sort of history of Israel, the history of sort of survivorship and whatever. So, yeah, I mean, sound and protest are, are instrumentally linked, I think. The idea of this being sort of a low investment practice or activity is still kind of interesting to me in the sense that you mentioned the demonstrations for Black Lives Matter and let's say, how could you put it, more impactful uh, collective practices where people invest gargantuan amounts of you know, desire, material investments and uh, put themselves in danger for a cause. So in this sense, this collective act of clapping is still sort of puzzles me. It's almost like a symbol that didn't didn't quite make it. Yeah, It's sort of, there's something ambiguous there that it kind of sits halfway of becoming an actual thing where actual things happen uh, or then just something that literally is nothing at all. So there's something really strange about this sort of, um, this midway on every continuum that this collective clapping is. And so also, perhaps that's also is the reason why it was so readily to be appropriated for by political interests or corporate interests too. Yeah, the sort of ambiguity and its and its lack of space, the fact that it could be easily coded by anybody, right, as an expression of what they were they collectively wanted to be doing, right? I mean, I think again, so much has happened in three months, and it's kind of hard to gain a purchase on these moments and how significant they were in terms of what they imparted or or even like the energies behind them. But I think. You know, right at the beginning of the crisis, when we were told that we had to stay indoors, when social, uh, when, you know, stay at home advice had come in, it seemed almost impossible, uh, particularly for the left, to find collective forms of activity uh, that we could carry out in response to the crisis. Um, so those traditional forms, whether that was the strike or, you know, the riot or, or whatever, we just weren't physically able to congregate. Although very quickly, people did take physical forms of activity. I mean, the mutual aid groups, people seem to forget those now, but, you know, they very quickly erupted. And again, there was a certain social resonance with that. So it totally viralized and expanded outside of the initial sort of activist hubs. I mean, if we were to look at the history of those mutual aid groups, and I think if we did an honest account of them, 
the mutual aid groups themselves were primarily started by people who were already embedded in their community, usually as community-based activists. So quite a lot of the people in London, for example, were around groups like London Renters Unions, local sort of community-based politics who already had these sort of thick social bonds in the area and were very uh, quickly able to mobilise um, practical support to people who were either immunocompromised or vulnerable in their communities by going out and doing their shopping or collecting their prescriptions and whatnot. However, those things never really scaled up in the way that I think quite a lot of like um, activists would have liked them to, in the sense that they didn't take on this uh, the true meaning of mutual aid in the sense that it, it wasn't necessarily this sort of reciprocal machine that could somehow disrupt capitalism. It just ended up basically being a sort of local service provision for people who weren't able to get out to the shops or whatever. Very quickly, that also viralized and went, you know, up and down the country. I think yeah, at one stage there was something like, you know, a couple of, maybe uh, I might be exaggerating here, but there was well over 500 mutual aid groups um, that were allegedly active. But again, you know, uh, our, our inability to collectively come together, I mean, really, fundamentally, the people who needed to take action were the people who could least afford to do so and the people that we could least afford to do so. So the nurses needed to take some form of strike action. Um, but of course, they were just going they were just unable to do so, right? As, as also shop workers, right? Shop workers needed to take strike action. People in the logistics supply chain needed to take strike action. But there was no capacity to, or no will, it, it, at least it appeared there, there was no will, to carry out that sort of activity. You know, the, the very people that we needed to take that form of sort of intervention, that very, you know, marked intervention into the crisis were the people who could least, we could least afford to take that action collectively. And also the people who just couldn't do it, you know, like so nurses, doctors, um, retail workers, logistics workers, all of them were unable to take forms of meaningful direct action, which could have, uh, you know, added pressure or political pressure onto the government to behave in a different way. And that just didn't happen. I mean, at, at the early stage there were reports that there might have been a coup taking place in Brazil, but that didn't seem to materialize. Uh, then in the United States of America, there were major riots that went on for several days, and it did seem that maybe they could transform into something much bigger, but now it seems that, that hasn't really happened. It seems that throughout this coronavirus, there have been numerous times where we seem to have been close to some sort of major social upheaval and yet it hasn't really happened. Yeah, I mean, I think that's also something that was, you know, again, talking about resonance. I mean, some of the early sort of takes that I was reading around the crisis were that it presented, you know, especially with the, um, the establishment of the mutual aid networks and whatever, is that these things presented new opportunities for us to sort of reimagine politics predicated in a sort of community practice of care and provision which could escape the sort of like old logics of like workplace struggle or community struggle, and maybe even sort of tentatively point towards like how we could imagine life differently. Yet each time I think we've, we've seen the possibility of something like that, it's very quickly either been diffused or broken down 
or alternatively, you know, life hasn't, you know, when people say, oh, life is never going to return to normal. I mean, until there is like a, you know, a, a vaccine, probably life won't quote unquote return to normal. But in the same breath, I don't see the exodus from capitalism coming through this moment in the way that was prophesied by lots of people from the sort of radical left right at the beginning of this moment. In fact, it appears that there doesn't seem to be any exodus from this sort of cycle um, because there doesn't seem to still be the capacity for us to collectively come together and find commonality beyond these sort of very symbolic moments like clapping, right? Speaking of uh, symbols, I'm reminded by the human geographer uh, Eric Swingedow when he was talking about how movement, social movements uh, come into being. And in his uh, wonderful speech, he says that from the perspective of science, we sociologists are useless, uh, he says. And what he meant by that is that um, a sociology, if you want to do a scientific approach to it, to predict when something happens, it's uh, impossible because we never know when a symbol manifests. So a symbol like, you know, Greta Thunberg or... It seems that these large-scale movements with a lot of staying power, or at least relatively staying power, uh, they always become very personified, symbolically. That somehow creates this, I guess, what you call resonance and some kind of uh, intensity. So maybe there could be something to be said about this with uh, regarding the clapping. Because it seems like the clapping as a collective act of solidarity or whatever it may be, it sort of lacks this personification. It's all very sort of vague what's going on, right? Yeah, social movements definitely seem to have more power or at least longevity when they're attached around maybe individuals. I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I'm not too sure that I haven't, I haven't really thought that through, but I mean, it, I mean, it's 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 potentially true, isn't it? In the in the in the question mark of um, George Floyd in America, I mean, so George Floyd is you know murdered by the police, extrajudicial killing, sixty uh, six days after lockdown in uh, is called in America, or well, not lockdown after their stay at home advice, we should say in the American context. But that sixty six days was obviously marked by forty plus million jobs being lost, um, 40 million people trying to claim unemployment, a health system which we already know is not universal, uh, and with a disease that was disproportionately affecting BAME people. Obviously, the response and the anger uh, levelled at the Minneapolis police and by a greater extent the whole of the sort of uh, police and judicial system in America also had all these other things in you know underneath it imbuing that moment and i think that's why you know in the uk as well you know when when people were were being asked you know why 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 are you going out on the streets particularly black people were being asked why are you going out and congregating in the streets you know to to protest this moment when you are disproportionately likely to be affected by this virus there's like a risk assessment that's being taken there right where people are saying well you know Actually, the risk of ongoing racialized society uh, far outweighs the risk that is presented to me by this virus at this particular moment. And again, it comes back to, you know, the phenomena of statues being torn down. But you ended up in this situation in London where, you know, Winston Churchill's statue had more protective personal equipment than nurses, right? And, 
yeah, I mean, trying to make sense of that whole moment and then trying to think through the necessity of maybe figureheads. I don't know if it, if it, if if these social movements rely on figureheads any more than actually I think resonance, i.e. something happens and that can be like regionally very specific yet somehow transnationally that relates into something that you experience yourself and it feels like something that's happening over there that you want to do yourself and so again a bit like clapping it had this it, it touched some aspect of desire where people wanted to move and respond in a particular way to a particular moment to a particular crisis but i suppose unlike clapping the black lives matter campaign is very campaigns or movements you know is very orientated towards very specific and clear political goals and aims where clapping was just this quite open and empty signifier maybe because of this ambiguity because of this lack of a clear symbol and a clearer movement maybe a better comparison than than these really you know large scale movements would be something like sort of maybe covid desperation because i'm thinking of clapping it's an agency it's an activity you are doing something so sort of sort of maybe it's more like a release valve which makes it a little bit more selfish again rather than this kind of a really political act in the first place no i think yeah i think that's that's yeah almost certainly one aspect of that you know again i think the left um were way too keen to present uh, furloughing and and other sort of things that reduced human activity outside of the home as somehow this sort of liberatory moment where we're all freed from the from the bondage of work etc now obviously that's a fallacy not everyone was liberated from the bondage of work in fact working class and and precarious workers were still at risk and going to work every day during the crisis however for for huge swathes of the population they were suddenly left redundant for one of a better word in the home with very little to actually do beyond sort of box set television and yeah i think having something that you could symbolically perform once a week uh yeah it, it was probably something that uh, broke up the monotony of this very atomized existence that i think a lot of us were feeling at that moment i mentioned before at the start that in ireland they had an equivalent uh, mobilization which is where they have people uh, put candles in the window. Uh, but a purpose of that was to express sadness and grief for the people who died. And I always thought it was quite a telling contrast between the Irish and British culture that in Ireland the mobilisation was an expression of uh, sadness and grief and in Britain it was this expression of um, ambiguous solidarity to uh, workers Um I don't really know why that's interesting, but I just, I can't help note that there must be something quite significant about that contrast. Yeah, I mean, lighting candles and whatever can only really happen in a sort of predominantly Catholic country, surely. I mean, it's it's imbued with that sort of symbolism, is it not? Um, Good point. So that probably doesn't necessarily translate into mainland, on, onto the mainland or in England specifically. Another big theme, if, if you're to watch uh, it, you can find it on YouTube. But another big theme of it was that, uh, and, and especially in the Sinead O'Connor song, was about how people were missing each other and missing the social tie in this period of grief. And again, so it's, it's just a totally different register to what was happening in Britain. 
Yeah, I mean, yes and no, because I also feel like some aspects of that were sort of caught up by, you know, like very quickly by spectacular capitalism. Very quickly, you saw advertisements that were, you know, filmed almost exclusively on, you know, through Zoom content with families speaking to each other to sell, I don't know, Tesco's ready meals or whatever. So this sort of sense of uh, loss or 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 missing people was articulated almost every day, right? I mean, I don't know. I mean, obviously, like everybody, I found lockdown very difficult. But also, there was part of me that, you know, welcomed quite selfishly this lack of activity and this lack of human agency in almost, you know, all decisions were, were sort of taken out of my hands. And it made me realise that actually I quite like the pace of this life stripped away from the busyness uh, that is imposed upon me by the rhythm of sort of everyday capitalism. I, I kind of like the disrupted rhythm of this. I suppose I dislike the lack of human contact, right? To get back to, to my point um, of this contrast is something that's missing in Britain and perhaps also from USA is that expression of sadness for all the people who have died. And the death rate here in the UK is, is very, very high. There was a front page uh, of the New York Times a while ago which had 100,000 names of people who died. And that was one of these rare expressions of just the enormity of how many people who are dying. During the early stage of this, there was quite a bit of shock about what the death rate was going to be, especially in Italy where we saw images of... of Bodies been taken away, uh, but by now uh, I remember uh, J- Jacob Rosenberg making an interesting point that in, in Britain it seems that the more people die, the less people care about it. There's something very strange going on, is there not? Yeah, I mean maybe, but I also feel like I mean naming the dead, the process of like iterating the names of those who have passed due to this crisis was something that was part of the BBC in particular's media strategy right at the beginning of the crisis. So every day you would have people's names being read, and again, particularly um, of nurses and doctors, right? And then very quickly that sort of strategy left that media agenda and then sort of coincided with the daily briefings where you would have the Prime Minister or other members of, uh, you know, the front bench giving these sort of daily updates on statistics, death rates, etc, etc. However, I feel like this sort of lack of this, this general sense of a frustration, like we're totally out of control here. There's no forms of collectivity that we can find. I mean, I'm still sort of flabbergasted that people rightly will mobilise to come into the streets um, to fight against white supremacy. Yet we're not mobilising into the streets at the fact that two to three hundred people a day are dying because of this government's lack of a strategy, or because of its very explicit strategy, which is predicated on allowing those, acclimatizing us to those deaths, uh, to the point where they just become some sort of like strange statistic, statistic that we have to deal with, and it just sort of drops out of like, it changes its register. It doesn't go from out. It's no longer outrage or even sadness. It's just like a daily occurrence. It's a bit like the process of invisibility, right? I mean, you know, if you walk through central London, you know, you're surrounded by homeless people. But the thing is, they're so ubiquitous, they're almost everywhere, that they become almost invisible. They're part of, like, the street architecture of London. 
So by acclimatizing us to these numbers, uh, with no sort of like strategy through which we were going to be ever able to exit that, I think people just sort of abandon any sort of clear sense making about what can what they can collectively achieve to overcome that. I mean, I'm not arguing it was necessarily a strategy of the government to do that, but it definitely definitely felt like an effort at deflating uh, anger. I'm reminded here of uh, Judith Butler's uh, famous uh, kind of theorization when she kind of said that uh, once you are kind of left out of a discourse, then you can, it's, it's akin to being that you can no longer be grieved for. So you kind of become, you disappear from the discourse and then you cannot be recognized anymore. So there is not even grief that can be extended to you anymore. And now what, with that in mind and tapping into what Alan said, that there's something strange going on. Because again, there is uh, a lot of discourse about the dead, but at the same time, like Alan says, it's almost like they cannot be grieved for. So there is something strange going on also discursively in maybe it's exactly how you already pointed out that when you become ubiquitous, you disappear in, the, in, the, in your uh, ever presence, if you will. Would there be something that the discourse, if you will, should do to focus on things better or anything like that that you can think of? It's kind of hard to know how to proceed, isn't it? I mean, I think, again, the crisis was already here before it arrived in a funny way, in the sense that the conditions upon which the NHS would not be able to survive a runaway COVID crisis had been laid down in the structural changes that happened to the British economy in the 1970s through the liberalisation of markets, through the collapse of the old industrial working power bases, and also through sort of legislation which had rendered unions a bit toothless, really, to take collective forms of action, particularly secondary picketing or secondary action. So add into that 10 years of sort of like austerity financing, which had basically hollowed out what was what was left of that of the, the sort of social democratic compromises. We were not primed or fit as a left to be able to respond to any crises anyway. And I think all, all that COVID has done as a sort of like um, strange, almost like, it's almost like a sort of meta phenomena, right? Where everybody, regardless of your subjectivity, has to, or your, or your particular position in society, has to readjust and change their life accordingly now. It sort of recoded us in these really peculiar and particular ways without us necessarily collectively recognizing that and at the same time the left have been scrambling for years to find strategies that can affect um, power I mean the most recent possibility or hope for that was obviously in the in in the institutional turn under Sanders and Corbyn but of course those two moments we could argue a a past now and um yeah, I think we're struggling still to find these forms of collectivity or these forms of agency. And without having these forms of collectivity and agency, then I think we are made ubiquitous and invisible. And with, you know, like uh, our solidarity is reduced solely to symbolic um, activity that isn't actually meaningful or can affect change. I mean, maybe to ask the question back, I mean, what do you think that we could maybe, and I say we in the smallest sense of that, do to 
to uh, to to insert some narrative into this or take control of that narrative or or to reposition human a- our own human agency in this moment. It would seem to me also that there's a huge difference from country to country because, of course, I imagine if you live in Britain or if you live in the States or Brazil, for that matter, you would have a quite a different opinion about COVID than, for example, I have here in Finland, where we generally, at this point, uh, of course, there's a collective sort of a depression and people understand it hasn't gone away, but the situation right now is really stable. So, and we feel that our government did everything they could, and we don't feel like we got shafted by any of the uh, any of the ways that the that the, our leaders managed the situation. So it's a little bit hard for me every now and then uh, to kind of uh, step into the shoes from you know a little bit like where you seem to be coming from and Alan seems to be coming from because I can certainly sympathize and I can I can feel that you know the idea the desperation and the helplessness sort of is rather different depending on your context. Is that I know you have been participating in um, various Zoom mediators uh, meetings. And that's something that I'm curious about, whether it's possible in order to have radical uh, gatherings of people that that, that have a sense of, of momentum behind them uh, that's so disembodied. So it, is it the case? My, my sense is that at the early stage, there was lots of attempts to, to, to try these. And now perhaps everybody's a bit fed up with them and they're not happening anymore. Yeah, I mean... This moves from clique to clique in very different ways. I mean, the small sort of activist groups that I'm involved in still meet quite regularly via Zoom. However, they were pre-established networks that were predicated in trade union activism or in community activism. And of course, our incapacity to physically come together has severely impacted on our ability to produce collective forms of activity that are meaningful beyond sort of interventionist letters or whatever. And so we're left, we're left still wondering at what point, you know, we, we will somehow, you know, like a butterfly reemerge out of this, out of this moment. But I, um, I feel the sort of the slow social loosening of lockdown in the UK, which seems incredibly dangerous compared to, to the loosening in other countries where I recognise that the R rate or the reproductive rate of the virus is much lower. It's hard to, to see any horizon upon which we feel that we will collectively be able to gather again and, you know, without without risk, right? Without uh, and, and obviously all these things have risk assessments attached to them. Going on a demonstration has a risk assessment attached to it. The risk of maybe contracting the virus or exposing people to the virus I mean, all that stuff is still there. I feel that the Zoom conversations, these sort of online conversations have operated mainly to keep people of, you know, certain persuasions together uh, uh, and reproduce uh, meeting forms that they're very, you know, they have their lives are sort of regulated and structured around. Whether they've actually been beneficial beyond just sort of overcoming alienation, I, I, I don't really know. Well, for my part, Steph, thanks very much. Uh, very interesting idea. No, thank you. I hope it was all right. Yeah, thanks, Ed. A former president to be that never did never manifested says, "Please clap." 